Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. Okay, I've got a joke. What did Richard Nixon say to his wife when she complained about the meal he prepared for her? I don't know. I am not a cook. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan, and from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win this week's dinner parties. You just got a joke from filmmaker Penny Lane. That'll help break the ice. She has made a new documentary about, surprise, Richard Nixon, and she'll tell wow. us about it later, yes. Plus, we will chat with actor Lisa Kudrow, formerly of the hit sitcom Friends, about her new show, Web Therapy. Also coming up, Anna Gunn, star of Breaking Bad, breaks out a list of broken couples. Mm. And Alex Kapranos of the band Franz Ferdinand tells us about the mess he made in Mexico City. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. The Obama administration's protesting Russia's decision to offer refuge to Edward Snowden. Yankee star Alex Rodriguez was suspended through the 2014 season. The Yemeni government claims to have thwarted an imminent al-Qaeda attack. Now for something you might not have heard, we are joined by Jesse Pearson. He is the founder and editor of Apology, a literary quarterly. Jesse, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? Well, I'm interested in uh, the mini Lisa. Which is the mini? Is this like a a, a cartoon character? Like it's Minnie a, Mouse. It's it's it should be. Simpsons. It could be. Oh, we we would never be able to see it if it were. It's um a nanotech painted version of the Mona Lisa. It's what uh, thirty microns, which I as a measurement I'm not familiar with, but apparently it's less than the width of a human hair. Whoa! It's a very realistic reproduction of the Mona Lisa, although it's in grayscale and it's a little fuzzy. <laughs> Gee, I wonder why. <laughs> is this actually that big a deal? I mean, the Mona Lisa is already kind of a small painting. I'd be interested in like a micron. <laughs> thick Guernica. <laughs> Guernica, yeah. <laughs> so basically they did this with nanotechnology? Nanotech. And I, I'll tell you, this scares me for a couple of reasons. One is that uh, nanotech is sort of one of the harbingers of the singularity, which is the fusing of man and machine, which is inevitable, um, but I'd like to postpone it as much as possible. Yeah. So mm-hmm. any nanotech activity is scary to me. <laughs> um, two, culturally, I think it signifies... It's another indication of the shortening and abbreviation of all kinds of content. Oh, right. Uh, you know, articles were reduced to blogs, were reduced to Twitter, and now everybody just communicates in sentences and hashtags. Sure, we went from movies which, to YouTube videos to exactly. miniature Mona Lisa. And it's, it's, uh, it's, it's shortened my attention span. I just flipped through everything <laughs> I wasn't now. even paying attention when you were saying that. I'm not really saying much anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and the, but I wouldn't be too concerned because in reading this article, we just have to take it on faith that they've succeeded in making a small Mona Lisa, right? How can we verify this? <laughs> It's true. You can't see it, really. It's true. They're just like, hey, look what we did all for the past three years with your research grant. Yeah. (laughs) Look through this microscope, we promise. Uh, Jesse Pearson, thank you so much for this uh, very, very small talk. Thanks for having me. And now, time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's like history's a fire hydrant that sprays a powerful blast of booze. Making everything worse, somehow. Or better. I guess. First, the history part. This week back in 1914, the first electric stoplight switched on. But it was preceded by a less successful version. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. Before there were cars, there was the traffic signal. It was December 1868, and in London, England, pedestrians were increasingly worried about the growing number of horse-drawn carriages stampeding unregulated through the streets. Enter John Peake Knight. 
He had design signals to regulate traffic on Britain's railroads, so he came up with something similar for street traffic. A tall pole with a little flag. A horizontal flag meant stop. A flag at an angle meant proceed with caution. At night, different colored gas lamps did the same job. The new signal worked great, except one design flaw. It had to be operated manually by a policeman who stood beside it in the cold all day long. And to add injury to insult, a month after the signals were installed, one of the gas lamps blew up in an officer's face. Britain quickly scrapped the whole project. It was 46 years before the first electric traffic lights lit up, this time at an intersection in Cleveland, Ohio. A signal stood at each corner with a red light and a green light. These were also operated by a policeman, but with two major improvements. The lights didn't explode, and the officer got to sit in a nice warm booth. By the way, since the early days of railroads, red meant stop. But at first, white meant go. That got changed when the red lens fell out of a stop signal, exposing the white light behind it. A conductor disastrously mistook stop for go, the ultimate crossed signal. So that was the history lesson. Now for the cocktail to go along with it, we are joined by Michael Cial of Labatros, a bar and restaurant in Cleveland, right off Euclid Avenue, where the first working electric stoplight was installed. Michael, what cocktail did this story inspire you to make? Well, thank you for having me on. Um, the hard thing was actually coming up with a name because the stoplight is already a drink. Oh, I didn't realize that. The stoplight's a drink that already exists. What is that drink? Yeah, that is actually um, creme de mint. The banana as well as grenadine. Ah. So it's a layered drink. It's a layered yeah. shot and actually sounds not so appetizing to me, but I'm sure that everybody else <laughs> likes it. But it looks like green, yellow, and red. So I, now I get right. the, the principle behind that. <laughs> exactly. That red part would certainly stop me from drinking it in the first place because it sounds <laughs> gross. But all right, so, so what's in your drink? So the Morgan Euclid is a shot and a quarter of chartreuse. Okay. Same amount of gin. And then um, a half an ounce of fresh lime juice. So you're putting the lime and the gin. Does that add color? Because it doesn't seem like well, that would the, make the color yellow. It's a little bit, but it, it just adds nice citrus. All right, so we're talking flavor. We're not talking aesthetics with that. Choice. Correct. And then what's the what else do you add? Garnish with two things. Drop a cherry at the bottom there. And then um, you rim the glass with a wonderful fresh lemon peel. I see. So the cherry is a, is a bit of red for stop, but that's buried, so you don't barely see it. <laughs> Correct. And the lemon is perhaps the, the slow down at the top of the glass. You got it. And so are you a native of Cleveland? Are you from there? Well, I wasn't born here, but I pretty much grew up here when I was four. Are, are people in Cleveland better drivers than in other places because they've had the stoplight there for so long? Or? Um... You know, all the drivers in front of me never seem to be very good drivers. The ones behind me usually are pretty good. Right, yeah. Yeah. That that seems to be universal. Enrico, we should note that Salt Lake City also has a claim to the first traffic light. Interesting. Yeah, but the documentation on all of this is a little fuzzy, Mm. and it seems like Cleveland is generally considered to be the first. Okay, and Salt Lake City already invented salt. so And lakes. Cities. Just leave some inventions for the rest of the country, you guys. Yeah, that stuff's untrue, but this is real. Our cocktail recipes, they're at dinnerpartydownload.org. Check them out. 
And now the guest list, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. The acclaimed AMC series Breaking Bad launches the second half of its fifth and final season this weekend. In it, actor Anna Gunn portrays half of one of the least healthy fictional couples ever. Yeah. Here she is to tell us about it and to list some others. Hi, I'm Anna Gunn, and I play Skylar White on Breaking Bad. I am the wife of Walter White, who uh, starts out as a very nice chemistry teacher, and then he decides to become a crystal meth cooker. A little bit of a rough relationship. They do not share many happy moments. So I've come with a little list, a little guest list of who would rival the Whites in dysfunction. The first thing that actually came to mind was the movie The Ice Storm, because everyone's dysfunctional in that movie. The Ice Storm is about a bunch of families in the 70s living in a suburb, and it's Christmas time, and and it should be a happy time celebration. And there is just this aching sense of ennui, this boredom. Kevin Klein is having an affair with Sigourney Weaver, I believe. Joan Allen is plays Kevin Klein's wife. And there's just this one scene I remember where she's doing dishes and she knows what's been going on and keeps it inside, but you can feel it like about to boil over in her. Don't start. Do you, do you, do you think I... I have no idea. What's on your mind? I mean... It wouldn't make for a pleasant evening if that's what you're after. I don't want to talk about it. I watched it a couple of times when I started doing Breaking Bad. That kind of marriage made me think so much of the Whites. Both of them are people, it seems to me, who've had lots of dreams deferred and lots of disappointments, but they pretend things are okay and we just go about our daily business and if we don't say anything about it, maybe it won't even really be there. Number two on my list would be the Stanley Kubrick film, The Shining, with Jack Nicholson and Shelley Duvall. Uh, Oh my gosh. It's about a mother and father and their little boy who go to be caretakers of this big resort. The resort is closed in the wintertime, and then it, it really starts to make Jack Nicholson truly crazy. Get a lot written today? Yes. Hey. Weather forecast said it's going to snow tonight. What do you want me to do about it? Oh, come on, hon. Don't be so grouchy. She keeps trying to smile and say, oh, well, let's have some dinner and okay. And and she just is in denial until he's coming at her with the, you know, what, what did he come at her with? An axe, that's what it was. <laughs> Here's Johnny! Until he starts coming at her with the axe, I think she's like, maybe she can deal with it. And then perhaps after that, she thinks, no, I don't know that I can come back from that. It's time for a divorce at that point, yes. My third pick is from one of my favorite plays, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, by the wonderful Edward Albee. The characters of George and Martha are... (laughs) They bring dysfunction to an entirely new level, I think. The plot really is just they invite a couple who've just moved to town over for a drink, a little getting-to-know-you party, and all hell breaks loose. Lots of buried truths are exposed and 
hurled about like weaponry. Stop it, Martha. Like hell I will. You see, George didn't have much push. He wasn't particularly aggressive. In fact, he was sort of a flop. A great big fat flop. Stop it, Martha. I hope that was an empty bottle, George. You can't afford to waste good liquor. That's that's probably the point where the, the young couple might want to look at their watches and say, you know what, we have got to be up kind of early in the morning, so nice to see you, thank you very much, but they don't. They stay. I think we like to watch things like this because we all know that nobody can be more cruel to you than the person who knows and loves you best because they've got everything on you. To watch people going through that, I think, is... It's fascinating. The guest list from Anna Gunn. She plays Skylar White in the AMC drama Breaking Bad. The second half of its final season begins Sunday. All right, ladies and gentlemen, coming up, crickets hop into protein bars. Writer Rob Sheffield karaoke's at a honky-tonk. And actor Lisa Kudrow talks about her love-hate relationship with the Internet. So thank you, Internet. And hey, you got to get it together soon. That and more when the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Later, actor Lisa Kudrow answers your etiquette questions. And in a few minutes, author Rob Sheffield reads from his new book, Turn Around Bright Eyes. Mm. But first, it's time to meet our guest of honor. Yes, and this week it is musician Alex Kapranos. He is lead singer and guitarist for the Scottish rock band Franz Ferdinand. He founded the group in 2001. Three years later, their debut album won Britain's Mercury Prize and sold over a million copies in the U.S. alone. They have since released two more albums, which topped rock charts around the world. Their latest release is called Right Thoughts, Right Words, Right Action. Earlier this week, Alex came by the studio to talk with me about it. And Alex, welcome. Thank you very much. Uh, The album comes out at the end of the month, but let's listen to a little bit of the first single from it, which is out now. It is called Right Action. So as always, I hear your singles, and I want to dance. Oh, cool. You're welcome. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's been four years since your last album came out. Since then, one of the big music genres that has risen has been electronic dance music. Yeah. How do you feel your dance rock band now fits into the sort of danceable music world at this point? Like, yeah, I, I feel it fits in the way that it always has done, because while I feel it's wonderful that... Uh, America has finally discovered house music 30 years after it was invented in Detroit. Um, We're a little slow on the uptake. <laughs> uh, but, you know, like, like it was a big part of our lives when we were getting the band together. You know, we it was our experiences at clubs as much as rock and roll shows which formed our sound. But I'm also wondering about the audiences. Have you seen, you know, do people come to rock shows to dance anymore? Do the, is a rock show a place to listen? And... It, it, it's, it's funny. It's like, it's, it's, it's a mixture, isn't it? Like, our audiences tend to have a, you know, there's a good level of energy there, and people tend to sort of go up and down. But you dance in a different way at a rock show. Like everybody's facing forwards, for 
for a start. Mind you, if you go and see a celebrity DJ nowadays, you got the same thing. Everybody's facing the DJ booth, yeah, so, so maybe there isn't that much difference after all. You're certainly though playing, you know, theaters. They have seats. Yeah, yeah. Most we of try them... not to actually. Like, like I, I don't really like playing seated venues for that reason. Yeah, yeah, for that reason. I, I, I like to see people moving about. And uh, in fact, last time we played in Mexico City, we played in a, a seated venue, and uh, it cost us a hell of a lot of cash because the audience destroyed the first few front rows of seats like they were completely like yeah that's yeah, amazing it, it's great and that's what you want because it's, it's such a powerful sensation when you've got this all these thousands of people and all that energy in the room to oh god incredible you can't beat it the band has been together now 12 years first of all did you intend music to be your life when you started this did you well i guess music's always been my life since i was about 14 and i first started writing songs with this band we, we got together to play at a party there was at the art school an all-female show we thought it'd be funny to be the boy band at the girl art show and uh we, we had four songs at that time we played them once and then we played them again and that, that was we didn't really think about it in, in the long term at all we, we were caught up in the moment of it and, and and thinking about what we were doing then well this is my question once it became your career what about that 12-year ride most surprised you right i i i guess it was surprising to find myself in all these places around the world. And it wasn't a surprise. It, it was a shock, really, like, because it, it went completely global. Yeah. It went, went worldwide. We were like number three, that it, album debuted at number yeah, three or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was, but because of that, all these opportunities came up. And um, I think we tried to do everything. And we would never take a day off. And we'd always go, we can't take a day off. We can go and play in Austin. And then, and then we can go and play in Bogota. And then we've got a gig in Paris after that. And so it totally wore us out. I felt really exhausted after a couple of years of doing that. Does that explain the four-year hiatus? Yeah, it's, it's great. But if you're going to keep creating and if you're going to keep writing, then you have to draw on more experience than being in a band and in a tour bus. Well, speaking of which, actually, this leads to my next question. I, we are kind of a food-centric show in a lot of ways. Sure, yeah, yeah. So I have to ask you about a project you undertook in 2006. Uh-huh. You had a Guardian column called Sound Bites, yeah. where you kind of documented what you ate on tour. First of all, why <laughs> did you give up that plum gig? That's a great Well, yeah, I, I stopped after a while because um, when people talked to me about the band, they wanted to talk about the food more than the band itself, <laughs> or more than music, because everybody really? loves talking about food, and, and like, there's only so much you can say about music, and then it'd be like, so what have you been eating today, Alex? And they oh, you know, like, uh, let's talk about music um, and, and also the other thing is uh, I, I don't think I have the self-discipline that you need to be a, a journalist and a writer as well as being in a band I thought you were going to say the discipline to eat constantly or something to maintain. no I meant more the writing side of things it's funny though I still eat almost every day that's crazy <laughs> yeah. you keep that yeah, up I've, I've kept that hobby going wow yeah, yeah. all right so we have two questions that we ask mm-hmm. everyone in this show and one of them is what's a question that you're tired of being asked Oh, right. I, I guess just because I've been asked it so often, where does the band name come from? Franz Ferdinand. Oh, yes. And, uh, uh, it, yeah. Now you have to kind yeah, of no, tell no, for those no, who don't know. I've set myself up, haven't I? <laughs> it's crazy how that works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah it, it, it came about like Franz Ferdinand. It's, it's such a familiar name to everybody that went to school in the UK. The Archduke whose assassination triggered World War One. It's such a kind of violent name for a band that is fairly upbeat. Yeah, it, it is quite an explosive name, I guess. And, quite uh, but for me, what, what particularly drew me to it was his assassination was a pivotal point, point where the 20th century really began. And I think 
it should be the aspiration for every band to be one of those pivotal points. You think you lived up to it, to the name? I, I, it's not for me to judge, and I, I would I would hate to sort of like um, make any claim to that sort of thing. It'd be pretty arrogant, wouldn't it? Here's our second question. It's more of an order. Tell us something we don't know. And this right. could be about anything, yourself, the band. Yeah, well, wh- where, where I live, it's, it's actually vaguely related to food. I have a, a studio called Black Pudding in Scotland, quite a rural, and I'm really into trees, mainly apple trees and fruit trees, I'm trying to plant trees. And the best thing about planting trees is you're probably not going to be there to enjoy them when they're at their best. It's a very optimistic gesture in a way. You're presuming that there's going to be people there in, in 80 years' time who might, <laughs> who might get to enjoy them, yeah. See, I told you your band was upbeat. Yeah, we're, we're definitely optimistic. Sweet love, illumination, sweet, sweet love, elevation, outside fresh, out of cyber, inside our love, you'll be all right. Alex Kapranos, lead singer and guitarist of the band Franz Ferdinand, Their album Right Thoughts, Right Words, Right Action comes out later this month. Two singles from it are out now, including this one, which is called Love Illumination. Definitely danceable. Definitely music you can wreck a theater to, (laughs) I would say. You know, you'd think they'd start writing more ballads after they got that bill. (laughs) It's true. All sad songs on their next one. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, you can watch videos for both of those singles on our website. It's dinnerpartydownload.org. What are you looking for, somebody? to eavesdrop. In 2007, Rolling Stone contributing editor Rob Sheffield released the acclaimed memoir Love is a Mixtape. His follow-up, Out Now, also uses music as a mirror for life. It's called Turnaround Bright Eyes, The Rituals of Love and Karaoke. Today we overhear Rob read and sing a bit of it. Hi, my name is Rob Sheffield. I love karaoke. I've sung it all over the country. I've sung it with friends, with family, with ex-friends who've run away in terror as soon as they hear my terrible voice. But sometimes it can be scary to sing karaoke when you're far from home and when you're the only stranger in the room. Here's one of the times that happened to me. Yucca Valley, California, the dead of winter, on Route 62 out in the Mojave Desert under the stars. A barn-sized roadhouse called the Joshua Tree Saloon The sign outside proclaims, Wednesday Karaoke Night. It's full of mostly cowboys, bikers, local ladies, nobody under 30. The karaoke DJ resembles Billy Ray Cyrus back in the achy-breaky heart days with muscles, a flowing mullet, and a salmon tank top. The song I write on my slip is Mama Tried, the country classic by Merle Haggard. Great karaoke pick, easy, fast, rousing chorus. But it's also kind of a sacred song, so I'm nervous not to screw it up. The table right in front of the stage is six cowboy hats, six beards. These guys are the only hell their mamas ever raised. The really tough patch of the crowd seems to be the 50-something mamas who are out for blood. They brought their own karaoke CDs, which means, one, they rehearsed all week, Two, they don't trust the DJ to play a version that meets their standards. And three, he knows enough to take their orders. So when the DJ calls Rob S, 
I feel a sudden pang of I hope they like me tingles. I picked this song because the saloon reminded me of all those years I lived in Virginia. I spent years learning to speak the language in the South. On the road, no matter where I go, I always seem to slip into this temporary accent I think of as travel Southern, the accent that says, I'm a mellow Virginia boy, not one of those uptight out-of-towners. I have a burning desire to get along, and I am not hassling you about how long this rental car transaction is taking. I am absolutely not from Boston. Up in the spotlight, my voice box chooses this moment to lapse into the most nasty Boston accent I've ever heard out of my own mouth. As I tell the crowd, I'd like to do a song by Mr. Merle Haggard. Great. It's all granite faces from the cowboys up front now. The first thing I remember knowing was a lonesome whistle blowing. I can't tell if I'm bombing. Maybe I'm ruining the song. Maybe I'm getting my kicked as soon as I'm done. Then comes the chorus. No one could steer me right, but Mama tried. Mama tried, Mama tried. to raise me better. And everything is golden. That leaves only me to blame, because Mama tried. We all love this song. Nobody's here to judge because this is karaoke night, moron. Mama tried. Mama tried. This is the best when it's done. People will clap or nod politely because that's what people do. And that leaves only me to blame because Mama tried. Wait, it's over already? Already. Good night, everybody. Rolling Stone contributing editor Rob Sheffield, reading from his music memoir, Turnaround Bright Eyes, and you're listening to The Dinner Party Download from American Public Media. All right, folks, next up, Rico Galliano singing an introduction to the main course segment. <laughs> and now it's time for the main course, where we talk about our favorite part of a dinner party, the food. Yes, and Rico, crickets, they're mm. not just the sound at the end of a bad joke anymore. Kind of like this, you mean? Like right now? sort of. Sort of like that. But seriously, (laughs) eating crickets and other bugs is the new food cause for activists around the world. All right. Because as global population rises and there's more demand for protein, insects are a pretty sustainable way of providing it. All right. They're also intensely gross, I should point out. (laughs) Well, Western (laughs) palates do find them gross, yes. Indeed. But lots of food entrepreneurs are trying to ungross them. Mm. Gabby Lewis and Craig Sevitz are among them. They own a new company called Exo. And they think they've cracked the code for feeding bugs to people. They make protein bars using cricket flour. Whoa. Yeah. I met with them at their office this week, and I started by asking Gabby, why crickets? So firstly, crickets were practical. There's already a lot of cricket farms in the U.S. for fishing bait and reptile feed. Also, crickets, I think, are more appetizing than most insects. Uh, Most people have very positive associations with crickets, unlike spiders, for example, which might be higher in protein, but repulse us. Wait, spiders are higher in protein? Yeah. Actually, the highest in protein is the dung beetle, I think. But there was no chance we'd get people to eat dung beetles. (laughs) I'm really curious about cricket farms. Like, where are they and and what do they look like? We actually (laughs) aren't allowed to go to the cricket farm that we get our crickets from because a few years ago there was a disease that sort of wiped out a lot of the cricket populations in America for this one specific species of cricket. And the one we're using is still trying to hold on the disease is so contagious that nobody from the outside world is allowed in, basically, to the actual farms. That sounds borderline shady. How do you know that these crickets are being treated ethically? Well, we spent a lot of time working with the farmers to tweak the practices to make the crickets uh, more optimal for human consumption. And we're also exploring a, a bunch of other options in terms of feed from agricultural byproducts, such as broccoli and orange peels. 
you know, giving the crickets space to roam. <laughs> free-range crickets. Yeah, free-range crickets. And just really trying to make sure that the process is as sustainable as it can be to sort of back up the sustainable idea of eating crickets in the first place. So as you were saying, cricket farmers were around because people used them for fishing, I guess, primarily, or feeding reptiles at pet stores. Were they a little bit taken back when you guys called and you're like, hey, we want to make a cricket bar? They actually weren't as surprised as I thought they might be. They were always looking for the next big thing. So I think maybe 10 years ago, cricket farms were in a bit of a downturn. And then people started getting reptiles as pets. And that was the next thing for them. So they were looking for the next thing. And a lot of them actually thought that humans might be the natural next step. A really interesting, fun fact is that after the movie Jurassic Park, everybody started getting reptiles as pets. And so that's when the big cricket farm boom happened. All right, so you find find your crickets and then... The new twist on this for me is cricket flour, which makes the whole idea seem more acceptable, the fact that it's milled. So how did you arrive at cricket flour? Yeah, we basically needed a a very natural vehicle to introduce people to the idea of eating insects. So we took the crickets, we freeze them, we roast them at a low temperature to remove the moisture, and then we grind them into a very fine flour, which then when we combine with other natural ingredients, it basically just tastes like a delicious protein bar. All right, so now give give me the whole list of why crickets are better to eat than, say chicken or, or other proteins? So they're very high in protein, 69% by dry weight. It's also very good quality protein. So you usually judge the quality of a protein by the amino acid profile. And crickets have all the essential amino acids, unlike maybe soy protein, for example. They also are very high in iron, more iron than beef. Wait, more iron than beef? Yeah, gram for gram, more iron than beef. What are crickets eating that make them so irony and proteiny? It's just their natural composition. I mean, they're just eating grains, agricultural byproducts. And don't they also have calcium or something? Yeah, almost as much calcium as milk. So there's got to be a downside. What's the downside of crickets? Well, there isn't really much wrong with crickets. It's pretty astounding, actually. I mean, because they're so tiny, they barely need any space, so you don't have to clear any land to sort of set up huge cricket farms. They barely require any water, which is one of the biggest problems of the agricultural industry. And they barely need any feed. It takes about 12 times less feed to raise the same amount of cricket protein as it does to raise the same amount of cow protein. Um, and crickets give off 80 times less methane than cows do. So what do crickets taste like? They actually have a very neutral, mild, slightly nutty flavor. So our cricket flour tastes a little bit like popcorn. And then you can combine that with basically anything and it takes on the flavor profile of whatever you're adding it to, basically. All right, so let's take a look at the bar. Basically, it looks like what you'd think an energy bar looked like. It looks like a, like a gold bar, but it's about half that size and it's chocolate colored and there's looks like there's nuts and uh, some other... So yeah, in there is almonds, dates, vanilla, honey, some raw cacao, some cacao nibs, coconut... Um, and crickets, basically. How how much of this is crickets? There are 25 crickets in there, around 6 or 7% of the the bar's weight. All right, I won't need to lift weights today. If I eat this, I'll all of a sudden become stronger. You'll get very big and strong instantly. Fantastic. It's pretty good. It's moister than I thought. And now I'm guessing that's more the date than the cricket. The cricket flower is just delivering certain nutrients. It's not really contributing a lot to the flavor right now. Yeah. This is pretty good. What do people say? The first reaction is generally, I can't even taste the crickets, as if they would know what they would be tasting if they did taste crickets. Um, No, people are almost always pleasantly surprised. All right. And then any other bugs in the future? Yeah, I mean, technically, the possibilities are endless. Like Gabby mentioned, the dung beetle, super high in protein. I wouldn't put cacao around the dung beetle product, whatever. (laughs) Yeah, it's good advice.
So Brendan, now a bug zapper is basically a cooking instrument. <laughs> exactly. Great. It's like a blue popcorn machine. You get that at Sur uh, La Table. And by the way, for people still put off by the concept of eating bugs, here's a wake-up call from the FDA. Americans consume up to two pounds of bugs a year without even trying. In unwashed fruits and vegetables, in processed foods, bugs have fallen into, and by inhalation. Wow. Yeah. So, so mouth breathers aren't dumb so much as they're cutting-edge foodies. Kind of. <laughs> That's right. They're getting a protein fix. Nice. They're multitaskers. Folks, uh, we're going to take a break. Coming up, Lisa Kudrow answers your etiquette questions when the Dinner Party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, we'll hear a song from the band The Preachers. That would be Creatures with a P instead of a C. Clever. Clever. And coming up, director Penny Lane talks about Richard Nixon's home movies. Don't listen to this if you don't want to know how the Nixon presidency ends. You've been forewarned, but first, it's time for our weekly etiquette lesson. Yes, each week you send us your questions about how to behave, and here to answer them this week is actor Lisa Kudrow. She won an Emmy for playing Phoebe for all 10 seasons of the hit sitcom Friends. She played the lead role of the self-obsessed reality TV star Valerie in the lauded HBO comedy The Comeback. Entertainment Weekly called it one of the 10 best TV shows of the decade. And she currently stars in the improvised comedy show Web Therapy, which recently returned for its third season on Showtime. And Lisa, welcome. Hi, thanks. Thanks for coming. So on the show, you play Fiona. She is a mm-hmm. therapist who gives her patients sort of short therapy sessions over the internet. Right. And she's really not a good therapist. No. Lisa. Does she have a license? I know that she, she was does. a banker. She right. She yeah. was in finance, not even a banker. Slept her way to the middle. <laughs> And then when she was about to get fired, sued one of the guys she was having an affair with for sexual harassment while being married to her husband, who it turns out is gay. Yeah, we find that out. She is accredited because she got that online. Just the person you want for a therapist. She's kind of in it for the money, basically. Yeah, or anything else you have to offer. I I guess. And the the thrill of manipulating someone. Now, you have said that you were interested in playing, quote, a flawed character. Congratulations. Yeah, you succeeded. This would be two very flawed lead characters in a row for you, what attracts you to these kind of people? Well, my favorite kind of flaw within the little flaws is someone who has no idea how they're coming off. <laughs> like, they think they're pulling it off. Yeah. yeah. Like, you know, Valerie's chirpy, sort of. It's all good, even though it's, you've got, like, spikes coming out of you. It's not all good. But you seem like a perfectly lovely person. What? Thank you. I am. <laughs> yes. No flaws at all. Why would you play... I mean, why do these characters seem to come to you? Probably... That basic fear that I am missing something that everybody else sees that I don't. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you did, this show is also kind of a satire about how the internet has invaded people's lives and kind of short circuits normal human interactions. Yet this show was launched on the internet. Yeah. And anyway, it's the kind of idea that was too unconventional. You could never walk into a studio or a network and say, here's an idea. It's yeah. just two people talking. Well, hello, you're Nick Jericho. Yes. Good. I'm Dr. Fiona Wallace. It's nice to meet you. You're very handsome. (laughs) Thank you. Not so bad yourself. Thank you. I I know. What seems to be the issue? Well, according to my wife, I have some sort of a gambling problem. Oh, is it a problem? That's what you give me? What? A pair of queens. Oh, are you playing right now? No. (laughs) 
But it does seem ironic to do a, a satirical show about the internet that you launched on the internet. Right. And making fun of the internet at the same time as we're using the internet because it's yeah. something new and we couldn't have done it anywhere else. So thank you, internet. And hey, you got to get it together soon. <laughs> Figure, organize yourself and make some rules. All right. Well, look, we've established that uh, we wouldn't ask Fiona for advice, but uh, a lot of our audience members sent in questions for you to answer. You ready for these? Yeah. Let's see how many times I bump into Fiona Wallace. All as right. myself, yeah, which maybe is we'll, horrible. We'll, we'll see behind the mask, or maybe there's no mask at all. <laughs> all right, here is something from Morgan in Los Angeles. We thought it would be good to run this by somebody who works in Hollywood. Morgan writes, I was raised to sit through the credits at the end of a movie as a way to acknowledge the work done by the crew. Often my friends will want to leave as soon as the credits start. How rude is it to make them sit or wait outside while I watch the credits all the way through? Good question. I think... You're always rude when you make another adult do anything. Yeah. So I think you just let your friends know beforehand, listen, I sit through the credits all the way. Are, are you a credit sitter? No. And then they <laughs> – I'm not. <laughs> and then they can decide where you should meet them afterward. Right. I see. But you don't but sit you through do, the credits? You must have friends who you quite often see in the credits of movies. Yeah, I might. <laughs> <laughs> She's not. It doesn't mean I don't appreciate the work. Like what? What makes you sit, Rigo? Yeah. I, I I like watching the credits to see all the crew members who put their nicknames in quotation marks in the credits. <laughs> oh. See, I didn't even know that happened. <laughs> that happens. So you have like a key grip who goes by John yeah. Big Truck <laughs> yeah, yeah. Smith. That is totally worth my time. All right. So we have another question. This comes from Angie. I'm hoping I'm pronouncing this correctly. Rebinock in Long Beach, California. Angie writes. I recently had a friend of my second graders over. Later, I found a One Direction magazine that the friend had defaced by scribbling, shall we say, nude female and male anatomy over pictures of the band members. Uh-oh. One Direction's a boys' band. Mm-hmm. I found it because my three-year-old brought it to me and said, quote, One Direction just got out of the shower. <laughs> oh. <laughs> this is great. Mm-hmm. My question, do I tell the mother of the friend about the graffiti? I have more questions. Okay, go. Well, right. we can make up answers. I mean, my other first is, how do you know that the friend drew on it? Did you oh, see you that happen? Not his kid. You oh, never know. Do you think the kid blamed it on the friend? Because one time I did, I assumed another kid did something. It turned out it was my son. Oh. So are you sure? Did yeah. you see it happen? So, but if the other kid did draw on it, yeah. you could call the mother to let her know your child left their magazine. I don't know if you want it or not, but yeah. I there's guess, interesting uh, drawings. Your child's <laughs> an interesting artist. He's a budding yeah. Botticelli. And I learned about your husband's anatomy or something. <laughs> <laughs> These are interesting pictures. Oh, I'm, I'm going to add another issue, which is One Direction. Really? Is this what you want your kids to be listening to? Yeah. Well, I this mean, one's making fun of One Direction. That's true. I kind of like this kid. But Angie. I think the mother needs to know. I think the other mother needs to know, but not in an accusatory Yeah, or, it's just you like, know, hey, just here are like, the facts. Here's information. Yeah, there you go, Angie. There's guidance, Angie. Uh, Here is something from Dirk Manley in Boise, Idaho, who first of all writes, yes, that is my real name and feel free to use it because people will think (laughs) I made it up. Dirk Manley in Boise. I like this guy. Uh, Dirk asks, when should you tell the person you are dating that you are also dating other people? Or should you? And is it rude for the other person to ask? Okay. And you like this guy? (laughs) Is it rude for someone I'm dating, working on a relationship with, to ask me, the gall, to ask me if I'm dating other people? 
Yeah. I was, take issue with that moment of the that question. That was my reaction when, <laughs> sure. I, when this came over the transom. But then um, well, there, you know, Rico and some of the producers were saying, well, look, what if you're seeing someone, you go on a couple dates. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what if it's early days in the relationship? You haven't gotten to the level where you're going out. And so would it be presumptuous for you to say, I'm dating other people? It's almost saying, hey, this is getting serious. Yeah, like, I as, think that's awkward. Right. I do think that's awkward. I think the bigger news is when you decide that you don't want to see other people. Okay. And then mm-hmm. you let that person know, I'm thinking, oh. I don't need to see other people anymore. What are you thinking? And I think that's what feels like is missing from this person is the other person, mm. that their thoughts, feelings count at all. That's true. Is it rude for the other person to ask? I like that one. How, that's d- a how dare you? If I'm out of line, then yeah. I swear I'll never ask you another question again. Just please don't leave me. <laughs> oh, man. Dirk, I think you have some guidance there. A lot of it. All right. Probably more than you wanted to hear. Okay. Uh, here's our last question. We asked this to all of our etiquette guests. What is the most memorable get-together you have been to, Lisa? Who, what, where, details, please. I think one of them that I remember, I was so happy to be included, Nora Ephron had um, people over, and we played parlor games, Mm. and I was good at them. So it's about me, and I felt good about myself. But the most recent one that was really great was Courtney tried to have everybody. Courtney Cox. Courtney Cox from the show over. From Friends. Yes, because we all hadn't been in the same room in many, many, many years. Was this for a DVD extra or just for fun? (laughs) No, just for (laughs) personal use, Uh just for us to see each other. So that was really nice. Well, Lisa Kudrow, we didn't expect to wrap this up on such a heartwarming note, but here we are. I know, that's right. We're thinking of something acerbic (laughs) and self-interested. See, you're not Fiona at all. You're a perfect etiquette guest. I am? Oh, good. Lisa Kudrow, the third season of her series Web Therapy, is airing now on the Showtime Network. And folks, we provide radio therapy each week by bringing in someone at least interesting and sometimes even insightful to answer listeners' etiquette questions. Yeah, sometimes. And if you have a question, we encourage you to unburden yourself and send it to us via our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. And now... Time for chattering class. This is the part of the show where we are schooled by an expert on some dinner party worthy topic. Today, the topic is the late President Richard Nixon and home movies about his administration. Our teacher is Penny Lane. She is the award winning documentarian behind the new film, Our Nixon, which consists mainly of archival footage of the Nixon presidency. It aired earlier this week on CNN and it rolls out into theaters for the rest of the month. And Penny, welcome. Thank you for having me. So first of all, the question I think a lot of people will ask upon hearing this is, really, another movie about Richard Nixon? Yeah, well, I would have, three years ago, I would have said the same thing. Yeah. People that know me were surprised by this project because I spend a lot of time complaining about the narcissism of the baby boomer generation (laughs) and how they think the 60s and 70s were the most important thing that ever happened. Next is a Bob Dylan documentary. Yeah, but what happened was my producer, um, I I co-produced this film with a fellow named named Brian Fry. He just heard from a friend that at the National Archives, in the public domain, were 26 hours of a home movie film that had been shot by H.R. Haldeman, John Ehrlichman, and Dwight Chapin. Right, some of his staffers. Yeah, they were his staffers, and they were guys who, you know, if they're remembered at all today, they're remembered because they were Watergate figures. Mm -hmm. They all all go to prison in the end. Um, (laughs) Spoiler alert. Yeah, everybody, <laughs> don't listen to this if you don't want to know how the Nixon presidency ends. 
I actually got a bad review from some TV critic who suggested that I should have changed the ending. And I was like, well... (laughs) Not much I can do about that. So Brian heard about the home movies. And the problem was that they had never been transferred into a format where the general public could see them. Hmm. Brian and I decided to take... It was about $20,000 to Hmm. have all 26 hours transferred so we could see it. And we just guessed. We were like, there's probably some kind of movie in there. And um, luckily there was. It turns out there was. There is... I mean, it's interesting that you would be somebody who doesn't like baby boomer nostalgia because there is kind of a sense of nostalgia in the film. The 70s styles, you know, this pop music that you weave through the whole thing. Um, And there's super eight footage of the Pope. You get shots of William F. Buckley shows up for a shot or two. The Mm -hmm. Apollo 11 rocket lifting off of the moon. What was your favorite piece of footage that you uncovered? Just kind of the most delightful. We happened to find an odd because these super eight films are silent. And we happened to find a sync audio track for one moment of these 26 hours where Nixon is just visiting some people in Idaho Falls, Idaho, and a bunch of kids dressed up in patriotic outfits start to sing a song to him that I don't know, I think a high school chorus teacher wrote. And they sing this song about how they're Americans and they hope that you are too. (laughs) And it just says so much about patriotism and like square America in the 1970s in this one little song. We are Americans, what can we do? We are Americans, we hope that you are too. We hope that you are too. Yeah! I want to ask you though, what do you think your, ultimately what was your goal here? Because you could that scene that you show, you know, on one hand could humanize Nixon because that scene shows him kind of glad-handing crowds mm-hmm. in middle America and he looks just happy and relaxed. Or, you know, you could also say that it's showing the pedestrian face of evil, you know. I think that I have zero problem with both of those interpretations and, in fact, want both of those interpretations to exist uneasily. That was the intention, to show a human face to an administration that, in general, as a culture, we would prefer not to think of as uh, a bunch of human beings. Mm. We would prefer to believe that Nixon and all of his, quote, henchmen were somehow different from you and me, that they were bad apples, and that we were able to, by the greatness of the American journalistic and justice system, you know, out these evil, evil men and take them down. You know, I'm not so sure. I'm I'm pretty sure they were just people. I was interviewing uh, Chris Morris, the British filmmaker who made a movie about terrorism, a comedy about bumbling terrorists. And he mentioned... Oh, I love that movie, Four Four Lions, right? Right. And he talked about seeing footage of two terrorists messing around with a hat. They were jokers and that it was kind of disturbing to see these two murderers as human beings that could just play around with a hat. Was there something sort of similar to that where you maybe saw something? It was the totality of these Super 8 films. You don't have to look at them for very long before you have that feeling. Hmm. And moreover, we use also uh, extensive excerpts from the White House tapes, the secret White House taping system. There was about three minutes of material on those tapes that made the president resign. Very damning. Very important three minutes. But that's three minutes out of almost 4,000 hours. And as someone who sat and just listened to way more of those tapes than anyone (laughs) should should really do, I can say that the totality, not one moment, but the totality of that is extremely humanizing. 
And people tend to think the word humanizing always means good, right? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, you're putting a human face on someone. It makes, makes you smile or makes you like them. Not really. I mean, human beings are petty and venal and selfish. And sometimes they're repetitive or confused or drunk. <laughs> <laughs> All represented on those tapes. They are. But you know what else is represented is, you know, some brilliant statesmanship. People that really cared about one another and joked around and, you know, were genuinely, you know, pretty excited about what they were doing. There's a tendency, again, to want to flatten the story of the Nixon presidency. And our goal was really to unflatten it. Filmmaker Penny Lane, her new movie is called Our Nixon. It aired this week on CNN and rolls into theaters over the rest of this month. And Brendan, there's this surreal moment in the movie Mm -hmm. where Nixon's team is leaving on their landmark trip to China. Okay. There is a home movie of them inside Air Force One as they take off, and they're all watching TV news, which is showing live coverage of them taking off (laughs) in Air Force One. Wow. Yeah. That's probably as close to psychedelic as those guys ever got. (laughs) (laughs) Bent their minds. That's what led to Watergate. They all just went crazy. All right. And that is the dinner party download for this week, ladies and gentlemen. But don't despair. You can keep up with us all week on Facebook and on Twitter, where our handle is DinnerPartyDNLD. Let's roll the credits. Jackson Musker is the assistant producer of the Dinner Party Download. Our interns are James Delahousie, Davey Kim, and Brittany Martin. Engineering assistance was provided by Jeff Peters and Bill Lance. Peter Clowney is our executive producer. And now, before we leave you, everyone, it's time for One for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties. The Preachers are a rock and roll band from Sydney, Australia. Their EP called Is This How You Feel just came out this week. Here's the title track. Bon appétit. Bright lights, you know, right? I'm gonna see you again. Thanks for listening to the Dinner Party Download. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Thanks for listening. Wait, Brendan. What? Look in front of you. Oh my God. It's a microphone. Yeah. There's one in front of you too. I know. I think our conversations are being recorded. This is... Uh, guys, you're on a radio show. What? <laughs>